0: Let's just get the 100-pound hippogriff out of the room. This movie, despite clocking in, I think, technically four minutes longer than the extended version of Sorcerer's Stone, did not feel as long to me as Sorcerer's Stone did.
1: I agree. And also with this one, I think this is the one I return to least because it's also, like, not the book I enjoy reading, but I actually enjoyed watching it again.
0: Yeah, I... I didn't feel that overwhelmingly negative or, for that matter, positive about this movie. I felt fine about it. Um, I think, if the listeners will recall from our previous episode about Sorcerer's Stone, one of my biggest complaints about that movie is that it doesn't spend enough time living and breathing in the universe to set up the characters and the plot that you're going to get and the arcs you're going to get across the eight movies. This movie... Having benefited from what little world building and kind of universe kind of just, you know, breathing there was in the first movie. You you already kind of understand the dynamics at play when this movie opens up. And then they hit you with some good Privet Drive scenes. They hit you with some good Diagon Alley scenes. And yeah, it it felt to me like a universe that was lived in. Like it felt real to me. It felt good.
1: This one also like jumped in very quickly. Like it almost was off putting because like I looked up and I was like, I feel like I missed something, but it's just how this movie happened to start.
0: Well, yeah. So this movie, of course, being Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, the second movie installment of the Harry Potter franchise, it was released on November 14th, 2002, directed once again by Chris Columbus, the final Harry Potter movie that he directs. Produced by David Heyman, screenplay written by Steve Kloves. This movie brought in 879 million dollars at the box office on a budget of 100 million. I'm not great at math, but that seems like a, a pretty nice profit for all those involved at Warner Brothers. Um, I'll tell you the big one of the biggest things I noticed early on in this movie was how much the characters aged in between. Right, Harry and Ron both look older. They sound a whole lot older. The twins look older. Um, Dudley filled out a lot. Dudley wasn't that big. I know in the books Dudley is very rotund. Mm-hmm. In the movies, uh, uh, Dudley's not that big. No. Like he he's got that jaw that kind of makes his face, his head look pretty big and kind of bully esque, if you will. Uh, but his actual physical features, like his stature, he's not like a. You know, a fat kid. Um, That was one of the things I noticed early on.
1: Yeah, no, there was definitely... And the looks were becoming more solidified.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The first movie very much felt like a faithful interpretation of exactly what was written on page in terms of the looks. Mm -hmm. This movie, while still accurate to what we read... Felt just a lot more pragmatic, right? Like they ditched those those awkward wizard hats, those pointy hats, yeah. right? Like the the uniforms that they wear at Hogwarts, while still being kind of the the robe dress code, are a little bit more lived in, right? Like at some points, Ron's tie is a little loose, you know, things like that. Like that felt like
1: normal everyday wear. they yeah,
0: they're, they're they're still like you know very much in line with what the books tell you they are, but it's a lot more
1: relaxed. I did feel almost like there was overuse of their Gryffindor robe. Like, they were wearing them in Diagon Alley. Like, all the students all of a sudden were wearing all their, like, house robes.
0: Oh, I didn't think of that. That's a good point.
1: To get, and I was just like, I don't... Like, it's not that cold that they need a traveling robe, because they were all also in sweaters. I
0: believe it's a traveling cloak, technically. Um... I will say one thing I bumped up against early on here, as long as we're kind of just talking about the first little bit of the movie. I guess a couple things I bumped up on. Um, Opening scene, Harry's looking through the photo book that Hagrid gave him. It makes sense to me that Hagrid would have found photos of Lily and James. Where does Hagrid have a photo of Harry, Ron, and Hermione from their first year at Hogwarts? (laughs) That's one of the photos that Harry's looking at. When did that occur? How does Hagrid get that? Follow-up question, which is going to be a theme that I had throughout the movie. Does no one find it odd that Hagrid's got photos of 11-year-old kids that he's just taking? (laughs) There's, like, various points throughout this where it's like, Okay, so, like, Hagrid's alone in his hut at night with uh, Harry and Ron. Or when Hagrid comes back from Azkaban, he, like, goes straight to a bunch of kids. Like, there's just a bunch of moments where, like... Questions kind of need to be asked about the slightly creepy, never graduated high school gamekeeper who like lives on the corner of the grounds of the school. Well,
1: and then you also add into the fact that like you learn he was in school over fifty years ago, so you're kind of learning more about his age. So it makes it a little creepier yeah. even because now you're like, well, okay, he was, he's at least in his early sixties to seventies. It's like approaching seventies at this point. Well,
0: it's one of the things that JKR is not good at um is quantities um she's almost as bad as george martin is um you know george martin will use half a hundred or thousands in place of any sort of specificity and it's gotten him in a ton of trouble in terms of people actually trying to figure out what that would actually equate to Um, you know jkr notoriously like whether it's uh quidditch points whether it's the galleons yeah, you know, the money the monetary system um there's a lot of points i uh, sarah sarah jones ditmire from first year's pod loves pointing out that jkr wrote in goblet of fire it took them 20 minutes to walk a quarter of a mile um and she like harps on this the same way i harp on you know the wizarding world's um economy and and system of employment um so yeah it is kind of interesting that like Robbie Coltrane, who plays in my mind what I would call like a late 40s, early 50s kind of character, I agree. Um, apparently is, if he was expelled when he was hypothetically 13, yeah. um, is 63. Uh, that doesn't track for me. Um, a couple other things I found odd from the opening, um, when the Dursleys are reviewing their plan of attack for when the Masons come over. And Vernon's like, where will you be? I'll be waiting at the door. You know, that whole thing. When it's Harry's turn, they all kind of walk together and group together and do, like, a very, like, a... Like, they kind of, like, lean in together, their heads all, like, in a row. It's like, and you? It's like, that's not how normal people act. Uh, that was odd. The other well, thing, even
1: if the parents would, like, Dudley wouldn't have, like, joined in there. But, but, but
0: no, like, in, in the thing about in your house. In the... In the course of normal conversation, if multiple people are having a conversation, you wouldn't pause for multiple people to kind of walk together into a formation. To
1: prep it to like... Right.
0: The parent would just be like, and you, right? It would, you know, you, you, and you. Um, That was odd. Uh, The other thing I really bumped up against was the the Japanese golfer joke. That doesn't fly in 2021. You can't write Mm -hmm. that into a book or a movie. Um, That wasn't great. Then we get Dobby's Arrival. Anything you want to say about our uh, tennis-ball-eyed, tea-cozy-wearing friend?
1: Oh, Dobby. Um, His CGI was not the worst
0: of the movie. Of this movie?
1: Of this movie.
0: What was the worst CGI for you?
1: I didn't realize how rough the Ford Anglia was in some scenes.
0: This is super minute, but the thing that I... The, the worst CGI for me was Harry's arm being repaired by Fox's Tears at the end. <laughs> oh, right. I don't like that's such a minor thing relative to like the flying car, yeah, or the tree, like the whopping willow, or any number of points where CGI is used. But for me, I just like, that, just doesn't. Maybe it's because I just read A Court of Thorns and Roses, where there's a lot of uh, magic healing wounds, and of course, I haven't seen that on screen, but I've been seeing it in my head a lot, yeah, maybe it's because. I don't even know what else I would have seen where they do that. I guess Star Wars, Grogu, um, and The Mandalorian. But yeah, that was... Anywho, I, I agree. It wasn't great. Um, mm.
1: The tree on a whole bothers me. So like... Well, they changed going the tree.
0: And... They changed the tree. Yeah. This tree that we get is the one that we get. Time out. I saw you write a note when the Whomping Willow came on screen. Mm-hmm. What was that note? Uh, when the Whomping Willow is attacking the Fort Anglia, you wrote a note. This is one of those moments where I see if we really think alike or not.
1: It it literally was like me writing the word Whomping Willow because the tree just all right. bothers me. All right, so I'll
0: say it now. We're going to kind of jump back and forth here over the course of the beginning parts of the movie. But when I saw this version of the Whomping Willow, all I thought about was Forbidden Journey. Yeah. This is the version this, you get yes. with that big arm coming down. And,
1: like My head is like, oh yeah, that's the broken arm. Yeah, but, which is just
0: like another reminder that... While I love so much like a treat. Of, Well, that that too. But while I love so much of what they did at the Wizarding World, this is my uh, nearly episodic reminder that relative to some of the imagineering that Disney put into Galaxy's Edge, it's criminal, some of the stuff they've done over at Universal. Like, ugh, I'm not getting into it tonight, but um, Forbidden Journey is just not a great look. Anywho, um, one of the other things... I also I, well, Dobby come you know Dobby and Harry have the interaction Uh, the pudding which one of my favorite photos of me that I've ever taken or had taken of me or however you want to phrase that is from Celebration 2018 um, at Orlando when they had the traveling studio tour exhibit and I have the photo looking up at the, at the I pudding I was
1: thinking of that photo because I was thinking about like photos I wanted to post when we do this because one of my favorites one is me with Aragog from the same year. I know <laughs> I know
0: Oh yeah, sure. Let's okay. Um, although I will say I didn't fully understand and like the fact that the pudding had like smoke underneath it as it was floating. Yeah, it was kind look. of odd. the The animation, the motion of it, was kind of odd. Like it was like a very like it was almost like it was on like a like a moving walkway. It was like very like it. It didn't feel smooth like, the way that. Well, we,
1: I think that's how they actually like.
0: Well, I know it was a practical right, yes. but it still it didn't it didn't feel as like magical. So
1: one of the things that I had a problem with this and watching it again is with the magic, it was like overly done like Disney kids show effects. Like lots of bright light them flying ridiculous amounts when the spell would not have been that powerful coming from a second year student like in the dueling scene and with the Obliviate like all of a sudden like even with Lucius is like, they're all flying like 10 plus feet across the ground.
0: Well, if we're going to go there, let's just go there. I had this for later on, but the magic in general is just not canonically accurate throughout this movie, right? So at various points, uh, when the bludger is falling down on Harry, Hermione shouts, Finite incantatum, and the bludger blows up, and that's not what that spell does. Um, during the duel, um, Snape funny. says Expelliarmus, and Lockhart does lose his wand. But Lockhart also gets flown backwards, and the wand—the way we've seen Expelliarmus in future movies, and I believe in the books—is that the wand flies to the person who's casting the spell, right? Like when Hermione—no, ca- Hermione, when Harry casts Expelliarmus against Voldemort at the end of Deathly Hallows, Harry catches the wand. Yeah. Whereas in the duel, the wand kind of just falls to the side, like right at the. F- foot of Lockhart and Lockhart's blasted backwards. Um, Whatever spell Draco shouted, the first spell he shouted Harry during the duel just shot Harry backwards. As I remember from the books, there's like the jelly legs curse or something like that, which I think might be the one Draco cast at Harry.
1: Was not a tickling spell in there?
0: Well, so Harry then says Rictum Sempra, which is, as I recall, the tickling spell. But Draco kind of just falls backwards. He
1: also like does the weird falling ten feet. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of different points throughout this movie where the magic that's cast is not the magic that we see. Um, which I will just say, ultimate portend, in a similar but different scenario, is where, in Order of the Phoenix, Bellatrix casts Avada Kedavra. Um, kills Snape. Or, Jeez, I'm tired. Kills Snape. Kills Sirius, of course, in the books. That's red light. It's, it's just one of those things where the magic is inconsistent both with the books but also with what they're saying the words they're saying and not translating to what the magic should be
1: yeah the flu powder worked
0: although question Mm -hmm. well here's a question we see in deathly hallows when they're leaving the ministry
1: yes that
0: you can do side-along group flu powder, or whatever phraseology you want I was thinking you about use.
1: that while we were watching that scene.
0: Why do they send Harry by himself? First is my question. Second, just like a parenting question here. And I'm not a parent, so far be it for me. But whenever my family, family of four, whenever we used to go places in public, like if we were in New York, it was always kind of like, you know, dad would be in the front.
1: You sandwich. Yeah,
0: you sandwich. You my sister and I in the middle, a parent in the back. Instead, the Weasleys are like, hey, let's send Ron first. Like, then I'm let's send Harry. Kids. Yeah, like There's no semblance of parental... That was bizarre. And I know this is a pre-9-11 era, canonically, when this when this movie but takes place. you don't
1: place. send a 12-year-old if you're going to send a kid. Well, well, well Percy. Where,
0: where I'm going with this is, A, it's pre-9-11 in terms of when this movie technically took place. Yes. And B, having lived in the UK myself... I know that there is a much more lax sense of uh, not parenting, but uh, kind of like micro oversight. There's like less kind of helicopter parenting, generally speaking, and, and there's a lot greater sense of trust and kind of freedom for kids. So I kind of get it, but also it was like, well, what the hell? He's never done di- Anywho, um, the other thing I want to say that I think is a good question before we, I know, again, listeners, I'm sorry we're jumping around, we're jumping around. Um, why do the Dursleys care that Harry is trying to escape?
1: I'm not sure.
0: Why? They have no desire for him to be there. They would prefer he's not. He ruined their dinner. They, in their mind, if I'm the Dursleys, I want nothing. I would nothing. take him. And like, I understand that Petunia has the whole, as we find out in later, in the later movies, you know, Dumbledore kind of thing. But she's not the one stopping him here because Vernon wants him out then too and Petunia's yeah. like no he has to stay I don't understand why Vernon is the one who's like he's escaping and he's like grabbing him by the leg he and falls this out whole the
1: window f- I
0: just I, I listeners if y'all have any theories as to why the Dursleys particularly Vernon for that matter is so adamant on Harry not escaping it feels like they'd be fine with him going that's just me. Um, so as we've talked about, the flu powder stuff, I will say about The Burrow was not what I expected. I, like, the first time seeing it on screen after reading, I remember, and to this day, I really see it. Now, of course, I associate it having, you know, seen the movies, been to the studio tour and all that. But um, while it definitely looked cozy and definitely looked quaint and homey, it was not what I had in my mind's eye the first time I saw it.
1: Interior or exterior?
0: I don't think as much about the exterior anymore, although certainly I know the exterior is more kind of hotly debated in terms of its composition, but the interior. The interior to me did not look at all like what I imagined. Not complaining, because I like what they did, but just something I bumped up against. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought uh, Mr. Weasley, is that Mark Williams, I believe? That sounds very Yeah, he's great. Like He comes in just pitch perfect, right? The morning Weasley. Yeah. No, he's like, Good lord, are you really? Um, and then, you know, and you know, did you really? How'd it go? Right? Like he is just spot on. I think he nails uh, Arthur Weasley like really, really yes. supremely. Um
1: You were correct on Mark Williams.
0: I knew I was, but I was phrasing I, just, as, I was phrasing I it as a question just to kind of seem humble. Um I know that which I speak. Um so once they get... We already talked about the flu powder, so we can move past that. Mm-hmm. Um, when they get to Diagon Alley, when Harry's in Nocturne Alley, um, the first thing I thought, especially having seen Sorcerer's Stone so recently, um, Hagrid's clearly not lying. So they're, they're, they're trying to set up that Harry's going to have doubts about Hagrid. Because when he learns about Hagrid in the chamber later on, he'd be like, oh, I saw Hagrid around Nocturne Alley, and he said he was getting flesh-eating slug repound. But but we saw in Sorcerer's Stone that Hagrid can't cover his ass for anything. Hagrid doesn't know how to lie. Right? Hagrid will say something and be like, oh, I should have said that, and then be like, don't tell anyone. You're, you're in my secret, Harry. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So like Hagrid, so calmly, is like, "Oh, I was getting fleshy." I was like, "Yeah, I believe him because he doesn't have yeah. a lie."
1: But it also makes sense. You're like, "Well, yeah, of course he. We know he grows." Well, well, well,
0: well, regardless of, yeah, re- regardless of what he was buying it for, the yeah. fact that he's so calmly and quickly was like, "Yeah, I'm getting flushed. I'm like, "Yeah, he absolutely was because we just saw in the last movie, Homeboy does not know how to lie." Yeah, like just has zero idea. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I wrote this again. I know we already kind of talked about it. I will say, um. The the the, the flourishing blots was well done. I thought. Didn't fully understand why Draco was the only person upstairs at the store. Like when he comes down the stairs, he's like.
1: He's so the only one hanging out on there's, there's, steps full right. of crowd. Right, but is. there's
0: if you look behind him, there's no one else upstairs. Mm-hmm. Don't fully understand that. I get that everyone's downstairs for the event, but you would think there would just be more.
1: My other thing, and this is back to the poor parenting shown, <laughs> is. Harry's missing, but they're all hanging out in line.
0: I have a whole... Store. In all caps here, I have irresponsible adults.
1: Yeah, and Hermione's out by herself, too, just right. hanging around and happens to see Harry.
0: Right. So, so, I agree. So, the first thing I have there is the Weasleys just straight up don't care. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Weasley's like, oh, you're here. Thank God. Right? Hermione's by herself. Where are her parents? Um, Hagrid just like, oh, you're with another 12-year-old? Okay, I'm just going to leave you now. Goodbye. You know The photographer Kind of just like Grabs this 12 year old And like Just shoves him In front of Lockhart That was odd Um You know Malfoy When he just Kind of like Is weirdly Like caressing Slash Assaulting Harry With his cane Like there's a lot Of irresponsible Adulting Happens there um, of course, in the books, Mister Weasley and Lucy is getting a full-on fistfight there. Yes. In the movies, that doesn't happen. But in my mind, that's another kind of irresponsible dolting thing. Um,
1: one, and this is like the stupid, like pet peeve of mine, is that you know, like, because the, they were getting Ginny her books. How many kids do they have? How many like copies of basic spells lesson, like year one? You, would... you have sitting in this house. You have enough kids. They haven't changed their school curriculum. Just yeah. give them the other kids.
0: I you you don't... Well, because I can go both ways on that. I can make one argument that the Weasleys are so. Uh, they they struggle. They struggle to make ends meet to the point where. They have to straight up just resell the book after the the end of the year in order to afford other expenses. But the counterpoint is they wouldn't have to buy them again if they just... I could go both ways on that. Either answer makes sense to me. I don't... You know, fair enough. I'm with you. Um,
1: There's just like one thing that always like stupidly annoys me.
0: Well, another thing that annoyed me, I only noticed for the first time here watching this, was when they're all going pushing their trolleys at King's Cross, they all have these Hogwarts branded trunks. Yeah. Where do those come from? A. I don't think the Weasleys are in a position to be buying Hogwarts trunks. Uh, B. Does Hogwarts have a student store? I have never seen one.
1: because mm, like Harry had it in movie one, right? And like, his had his initials
0: on it. Right. Like. where, where, where are those coming from? Right. Because I can understand if you're just like buying a trunk in Diagon Alley. Fair enough. Although I guess Newt's Commander aside, a trunk is a trunk. Mm-hmm. Um. So you don't have to get a magic one, so to speak, necessarily. Maybe
1: there's a Hogwarts welcome kit that just <laughs> arrives.
0: Which is a great question, and then the follow-up is, what else is in that kit? Because that would be really fascinating, right? Because sometimes when you get into a school, you know, they'll give you like a T-shirt nowadays, or they'll, yeah. whatever it might be, a pen, a notepad. Like when I got into my MBA, I got a notepad, a pen, I think a padfolio. Even pad when folio. you were
1: applying to schools, they would give you T-shirts. I had so many college T-shirts when you were like at a festival type thing, and there were colleges.
0: Yeah, but point is, yeah, like I saw Jenny had this like, it's like this mint green Hogwarts crested trunk, and I was like, well, "Wait,
1: she hasn't been there yet." But where,
0: where is that? Like, where does that come from? Um, thought that was interesting. Um, next thing I have is similar to the mirror of Arised in Sorcerer's Stone where we talked about last time that was like one of those scenes where it's like oh okay Radcliffe can handle Mm -hmm. he can handle himself I've now seen Daniel Radcliffe in Lifespan of a Fact Um, of course he's done a slew of things both big and small screen on stage since the Potter films and towards the end of the Potter films, he gets a lot of chances to kind of spread his wings and do a lot more physical comedy and deadpan humor. Mm-hmm. When he and Ron are in the flying car and he says, I think we found the train. That was like one of the earliest moments where I was like, oh, yeah, he knows how to do dry humor. Because that was, he said it with a straight face. He said it just kind of almost monotone and he nailed it. And throughout this movie, I think he's got a lot of lines like that that really show off his ability to to stretch kind of a, a line reading and, and and turn it in a funny direction. Yeah. And
1: this is like also the movie where you see him building those skills for like where it gets to sassy Harry in, is it five? Where he has like, he gets a little...
0: Well, he's angsty in five. He's sassy in six, if you ask it's me. It's six.
1: It's six. It's because I'm specifically thinking of the liquid luck scene. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um while we are speaking of uh, I don't even know where this is gonna go, so I'm a little concerned. But Ginny Bonnie Wright actually did really good in this film. Really well. Really well. If you like if you don't think of what's coming in the future, like when the scene where you first see her and she sees Harry in and the she blanches, face. yeah. Yeah, like yeah. now I did realize that like for how interwoven her character is into this movie they didn't have those little side scenes that built on like they didn't have the scene with her like going to try to tell someone so you kind of missed that where she was in it you missed her through the whole thing and then all of a sudden you see her again at the end
0: yeah it's funny in movie one they set up Hagrid as I talked about last time to seemingly be this father-teacher-mentor-esque relationship to Harry. And in this movie, in my mind, even though he's on screen a lot, all that momentum is blunted. Um, this movie, I think really nicely, sets up the Bonnie Wright-Dan Ginny harry relationship. To be kind of like this coming-of-age kind of... like. Together, kind of story mm-hmm. where, like, in different ways, they're in each other's lives, both directly and indirectly, over the course of these school tales. But as we see in future movies, she's just not really in them. No, like, she's not, she's very much relegated. Um, yeah. but like, in, I did think she did a really nice job in this movie. Um,
1: like, I wish we had some more of those little scenes of seeing her through like. Yeah, well, because that's, that's kind of just
0: it. I think one of the issues for Hagrid, and Hagrid's case, right? Because in my mind, this is a parable, mm-hmm. is it, with Hagrid, because a lot of his scenes with the, the trio are kind of these little just one-off scenes, either outside the Great Hall or down at his hut, or, you know, kind of just in passing kind of scenes. Yes. They cut those from book to movie because they're not, you know, mandatory. But they're the ones that really help solidify his relationship with Harry. Yes. Right? And... Ginny throughout the books is someone who is always around all the action. There's always a lot of throwaway lines, seemingly throwaway. Of course, she was, J.K.R. was seeding kind of the plot there, right? But there's always these little moments where Ginny's around and all of that. And, of course, a lot of that is taken out for for plot sake and brevity's sake in the movies. And the other thing, and we don't need to go down this route right now, is it feels like, and again, we've talked about this so much, I don't know who I blame, because I wasn't there. I don't know if you blame Bonnie Wright, I don't know if you blame the directors, the producers. I don't I don't know who takes the blame for this. But it feels like, after such a strong foundation, if you imagine her acting performance on like a radio dial, right, and you can either tone her down or tone her up, the books tone her up. Right? The books make her this fiery, feisty, wonderfully aggressive Amazingly, kind of drawn-out character. Whereas the movies tone her down, um, and and just make her this kind of frankly dull counterpart, this this boring, bland counterpart, um, which is really a shame.
1: It is, especially like with what she's like. She did not have a lot of lines in this movie. There could have been more of her based on the storyline. But the basis that we see here kind of sets you up for a better understanding of her and you don't you don't gain that. Like what we know here is pretty close to what we know at the end except that she ages. Like there's no yeah. additional information coming in the future on Ginny.
0: Next we pick up at Hogwarts. The car is crashed, the Whomping Willow, the whole thing. The first thing I kind of wrote here was when they're in Snape's office and Dumbledore walks in. When Snape points at them and says, "These two broke the statue," he looks so childish when he's doing it. <laughs> like it looks like when two kids are in trouble and the parents like, "Tell me what happened." And you're like, "Well, he did it, right?" Like Snape looked so childish, which obviously is intentional. And I thought it was just really well done. I think Alan Rickman again is just a tour de force. Um, very different, I think, energy in this movie than in the last. In the first movie. But equally as wonderful. The other thing I thought was interesting from... Oh, that's that's another scene. Anything you want to say here about kind of this opening?
1: Well, this is still close to the beginning. The Howlers. What do you think of The Howler? Is it like what you expected? Do you remember like what you mentally saw in your head from the books?
0: I don't wholly recall. But what I think I recall was really just... A voice emanating from like a smoking scarlet letter, not the letter kind of contorting into a mouth.
1: And then eating itself.
0: Right. Yeah. I that I, I look, I love it. I love I what they love did it. here, and I have the Minalima premium print over in my in my study, and I absolutely adore it. Um it's just beautifully wrought. It uh, definitely is not that. That might be one of the themes of this movie. Is in terms of my mind's eye from the books to what we see on screen, not necessarily what I envisioned. But I'm not complaining about what mm-hmm. I saw. Um, next thing I have is the Mrs. Norris scene when she's found the chamber. Yes. Uh, so first off, Walter Frey, uh, David Bradley uh, comes in. You murdered my cut. I'm going to kill you. I, I thought he was, A, as wonderfully creepy as always. Um, when Snape and the professor show up, and Snape says, I didn't see Potter at dinner. I'm sorry. Is Snape just, like, looking for Harry at dinner?
1: Like, there's a lot of kids in there. It's not your house. Like, if McGonagall's like, I didn't see. It. Like, that make a little more yeah, sense. Yeah, like, camp she, counselor She's watching kids. her kids. Yeah.
0: Snape's like, I didn't see. It. Okay, well. Look, not for nothing, but there's a lot of things out of context throughout this, these entire sets of movies where it's like, someone should be checking in on these adults <laughs> who are in close proximity to young, vulnerable children. All I'm saying. Um, but the, the positive thing I saw from that scene, um, I guess two two notes, I have one positive, one funny, is Alan Rickman has these very subtle hand movements and it's not like he's gesturing with his gesturing with his hands. He's kind of almost just like, kind of like twitching his fingers as he's walking towards them in that scene. when the chambers, would, you know, when Mrs. Norris is sitting there petrified, and they're just really delightful. They're like a super muted version. Listeners, I'm sure people who have seen the movies a lot will recall kind of Barty Crouch's hand gestures. Barty Crouch Senior. When he's doing the whole Goblet of Fire thing and he's kind of raising his hand, super like stiff-like. You know what I'm talking If you've seen Gobble of Fire, unfortunately, as many times as I have, you'll know what I'm talking about. But Alan Rickman has these very muted kind of... It's almost like a twitch in his hand. and it's intentional. I don't yes. think it's... I don't think he just naturally had this twitch. I. It was... Something about it was so he compelling. He
1: is one of the actors out there that every movement, no matter how small... Is all intentional.
0: The other thing I thought was funny from this chamber opening scene uh, was um, when Filch is like, Oh, my cat's been petrified. He, nothing's going to happen. To me, it was like almost like when you're a kid and like you go to the doctor, and the doctor's like, Yeah, you have, and look, I'm just going to use this example. This is not, you, know, you have mesotheliomia. Or mesothelioma, right? Remember those all those commercials? Yes. You know, if you or a loved one have been in contact with this, you may be entitled to a settlement, right? <laughs> but it's like just because all of a sudden you've heard this fancy word, you're going to use email. You have no idea what it means. Filch has no idea what the word petrified means, but Filch is like, my cat's been petrified, right? Like, it, I, uh, yeah. like,
1: and I love his performance, but part of me is also like knowing his attachment to that cat. I expected more than you killed my cat.
0: <laughs> well, I well I thought that you. You murdered my. Ca- I thought that was actually brilliant because there was almost like this cold, like emotionally you you've been emotionally drained, maniacal kind of response, right? Because like the easy answer would have been just the yell and shout where and now scream. Now it's more like a threat, right? Where he's just kind of like coldly like, "You murdered my cat.
1: I'm, murder I'm, I'm
0: gonna <laughs> murder you." Right? Like, it's not like a shouting, fiery thing. He says, like, no, eye for an eye. Yeah, I, I, I actually love that choice. I thought that was really well done. Um, next thing I have is Quidditch. What did you think of Quidditch?
1: I mean, like, it's almost like one of those movies where you don't need the scene, except you need the scene because of the bludger issue. And nothing fancy with it. Nothing stuck out. Like, we talked about, like, the structures. Well, like... But that's, like, outside it. But I'm just like...
0: Yeah, well, so... uh, I guess I'll, I'll respond to that, and then I'll kind of give my own take, which is... Yeah, you know, when the Bludger is destroying various wooden parts of the Quidditch stands, nothing happened. Like, none of the stands shook or rocked or... Showed any sort of distress from their foundation being ripped <laughs> apart, um, which was interesting. Uh, but I actually really liked the Quidditch this time, relative to the first movie. I thought it they had, they had a lot more diverse, dynamic camera angles. Yes,
1: it's definitely improved. Like
0: the sound, like it, it felt a lot more real, uh, as far as a imaginary magic game can feel real. Like I actually really really enjoyed. Um, yeah, and so that, I guess, leads us to Harry's arm being deboned. He ends up in the infirmary in the hospital wing. Uh, Dobby shows up. The thing I wrote here is I have no thoughts. Like I and, I, and I say that because like this actually kind of spoils a little bit of what I'm talking about at the end. But there, there are a wide swath of this movie where I kind of just watched it. And I didn't... My barometer didn't go either direction. I was like, okay, I'm just watching this. And yeah, that makes sense. Let's move on. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's like, like some of these scenes, like I didn't even have Quidditch in my notes. I'm like, it happened. We're
0: good. Um, so I guess the next big thing I have, tell me if you have something else, would be the dueling club. Yes. Yeah, so we already talked about the spells not doing what they say they're going to do. The thing I thought was interesting was... Well I guess, do you have anything to comment on from the actual dueling club event? Like from their time in that in the Great Hall with Lockhart and Snape.
1: Um, just the we already discussed the throwing of people and the wrong Yeah, we already titles, discussed that. Like, anything else? Not really. Um I do enjoy Lockhart's kind of entrance into this.
0: I think he's got a good wardrobe.
1: Oh, he has a great wardrobe. His little side cape situation.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I'm taking leave it on the cape, but that like quilted vest with the the forest green pants? All about that. Uh, no, no. I can already hear the questions from people like Mari, people like Paula, people like Amy. Brandy doesn't listen, but people like Brandy, I'm not cosplaying that. I'm not wearing that. I'm just saying I appreciate it. I like it. End of story. Um,
1: Before we move on to, on Gilderoy, what do you th- what do you think of the fact that Jason Isaacs initially auditioned for that role? He
0: could do it. It w- it would be he could absolutely do it because I've seen Jason Isaacs in a fair amount of things at this point. Um, he has the twinkle in his eye. He has the. Jaw. He has kind of that bravado. The bravado slash boyish good look.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It would be a because of his accent more than anything else. I I think it would be a slightly more cold. It, it would still. He would still radiate all of the necessary kind of uh, you know a and kind of that that lockhartness. But it would it would lean more towards you knowing something's up with Lockhart than this over-the-top kind of bumbling idiot Just that Kenneth Branagh presents. Yeah. Yes.
1: Well, and I, I do like the choice that they went with Jason Isaacs as Lucius. I think he's like perfect cast. He's another one of those people that's like, that role is perfect casting for him.
0: Um, once they get back to the Gryffindor common room and they're like, you're a parcel mouth. It made no sense to me that Ron knew what a parcel mouth was. Where is Ron picking up that information? Hermione's read about it. Yes. Ron doesn't know what the hell that... Maybe once Hermione says it, Ron's like, oh, yeah, feels like Bill or Charlie mentioned that at the dinner table. Ron's not like, you're a parcel mouth. No, you don't know.
1: And then, like, the other thing with linking that is, like, McGonagall has said in class, she's like, only the heir of Slytherin can speak to it. Why hasn't anyone made this conclusion? Eric Slytherin can speak to it. Slytherin, Parseltongue, snake.
0: Yeah, I don't. I, I have no answers to that. Um, what'd you make of Dumbledore's office? This is the first time we're introduced to it, right? It
1: literally, my notes say Dumbledore's office. First time seeing. Yeah. I love his office. I love that it's like not the traditional like square shape. I love the like, like dais almost where it's like elevated. It has all the fun instruments. I would love to be in that room and just to look around things.
0: Yeah, I thought they did a remarkable job. I will say the thing that I find interesting, having been sorry to the studio tour, is how small that office is in real life. Because it doesn't look massive by any stretch of the imagination in the movie, but when you're there at the studio tour, it's not that big. Like... I I don't know how to explain it other than it just it felt a lot tighter in person than I was expecting it. To. I wasn't expecting it to be cavernous, but yeah. It, 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 you but know. like when
1: also you think like if you think of the scenes filmed in the office, usually Dumbledore's hanging out at his desk, so you don't need a mass of space. And I think maybe the smaller you get, the more little interesting objects in the video recording film
0: um so this was right around the time I believe dinner showed up um so I definitely have some notes that are missing but the next thing I thought was fascinating um was the polyjuice potion um when the trio were drinking it after um well I guess I have my notes backwards here because I have that well so I guess first they go to the Slytherin common room because they have to... No, 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 it
1: happens no, after? No, no, I was nah. waiting because that was all my thing because that was the first time we see another common room.
0: Polyjuice juice potion. We, of course, uh, watch the trio drink it and they give these revolting faces as they down Essence of And they of all break the glasses. <laughs> and they break the glasses and... Um, I of course flashed back to Celebration 2018 in Orlando uh, when John Richardson, who led all the special effects for Harry Potter, uh, talked through a multitude of different effects and props and all the like. Um, But most notably in my brain is he brought the concoction of polyjuice that he made for the kids and he gave it to some some fan at the event. Um, And he said that he didn't let them try it ahead of filming. Because he wanted the reactions of these, you know, 13, 14-year-olds to be as close to, you know, as real as possible. And he said he made it disgusting. And it looked pretty gross.
1: Yes. Um,
0: but, yeah. So, they they run off. We get the Slytherin common room. Well, but first, I guess we get Draco in the hallway with our boy, Daddy Chris Rankin. Um, yeah, I will say, just for what it's worth, because he hasn't got enough shine... I thought it was a good performance from Chris Rankin throughout. Um, I thought it was also a good performance from Tom Felton. Tom Felton had—I don't know if I would say more screen time, but he definitely than the first one. But he definitely had more elongated lines. Yes. Um I thought he did very well with what they gave him. Um, yeah. What did you yeah, have his, on
1: his ad-lib line is in that section too. Yeah.
0: What um What did you have on the slaughter common room?
1: It definitely has like non cozy vibes. I found it weird that Draco's just like up there stealing presents from random places in the common room. That always felt weird to me. Yeah, again, it's not something
0: that I had in my mind's eye. But I liked what they rendered.
1: Yeah. No, it matched the Slytherin aesthetic. It's just... It is very... And maybe this is purposeful. It is very opposite to the feel you get in Gryffindor. Like... There's... Like, the couch, like, looks like it's, like, more, like, stone and... Well, yeah, the,
0: the, yeah, the, the whole southern common room is not, like, dark, but it's sunken. It's stone as opposed to all these beautiful kind of tapestries and it's comfy muted, couches. Like, yeah. Yeah, like, uh, right, but, um... Yeah, this is a, something I'm kind of talking myself through as we record this is, you know, visually, not what I expected, not what I saw, but I, I enjoyed but what they gave yes. us. Um, yeah, so the flashback with Tom Riddle. Um, I loved, I think, everything about... So, not I mean, everything. I not like Hagrid's look. Hagrid's look is rough. Hagrid's look is... That's
1: rough. the only thing that dra- I... Like, ha- Hagrid...
0: You know, uh, obviously the timing is different, so you can't—you couldn't have got the same character because I don't think he might... I don't, he probably wasn't even born. He probably was like two or three. But y'all who've watched Game of Thrones, Hot Pie, the char- if you go Google Hot Pie from Game of Thrones, um, that is what I would imagine a young Robbie Coltrane to look like. Um, but yeah, other than the look of Hagrid in that flashback, everything about the diary, everything about... The visualization of the flashback, how the color works, all of it, I thought was great.
1: I almost wish you don't see Aragog in that scene, because it leaves it a little more mystery. Because you're like, oh, Big Spider, running out of the room. But it's also not necessary.
0: I can't say I have many thoughts on the Big Spider, so...
1: I also, when I wrote Aragog on my notes, I put Aragon because apparently I've been thinking about Lord of
0: the Rings. Well, I will say for what it's worth, as someone who doesn't enjoy the hour of Lord of the Rings that I watched, um, when he says not Aragog, it does kind of sound like Aragorn because I registered as Aragorn (laughs) first. I was like, well, that's not the name.
1: I I didn't even notice it until I looked at my notes. I'm like, that is not the right series.
0: um, So next thing we get, you know, Harry kind of goes to like pseudo question Hagrid. He's like, "No, I'm just going to the flesh-eating slug repellent, right?" And again, it's meant to bring back the question of nocturnality, the whole kind of seeding of doubt of Hagrid's coming back to roost. Um, Neville's like, "You gotta come, you gotta come," because the diary is missing. Another scene there, um, and then Quidditch. Which this might be my favorite line from the movie, both the re- the actual line and the reading of it, is when Oliver Wood says. You can't cancel Quidditch. And McGonagall says, silence wood. Like, I'm so... because it's Because the two of them are the biggest Quidditch heads there are. Um, like, the two of them... W- w- McGonagall maybe not, but, you know. There's a part of McGonagall that would gladly give up every other bit of academia at Hogwarts if she could do nothing but focus on Quidditch 24-7. Uh, and so, like, the way that they both deliver those lines is just so well done. Um, Hermione's petrified.
1: Hermione is petrified.
0: Kind of astounding that the professors, who were supposedly highly trained and highly logical and highly intelligent, couldn't find the piece of paper that's massive, gripped in her, like, 12-year-old girl hand.
1: Yeah. And the book was in the library the whole time?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, who does Hagrid think is coming to his door? Genuine because I don't know. He's got the crossbow. And I have no idea who he's expecting.
1: I think he's expecting the Ministry. I don't know why the crossbow. But why the crossbow? Yeah. Because that's going to get him in more trouble. Yeah. But also it's Hagrid.
0: No, but that but that doesn't track.
1: No. Like... I... Because
0: mm. like the, the places my mind always jumps to the giant spider, which at that point we don't know. Well, we know it's Aragog, but we don't know Hagrid is like friends with. Right, but Hagrid's friends with Aragog, so that wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. Right, but if the movie wants you to believe that the spider is the monster, which at that point it does, as a moviegoer who doesn't know the rest of the story, okay, Aragog's coming back because Hagrid would know who the monster is, right? But we know that Hagrid's friends with Aragog, so he wouldn't, you know, so it doesn't make sense for it to be Aragog. There's a case to be made, although this gets to a much larger <laughs> macro question about the way that the Wizarding World talks about Lord Voldemort and his origin story and his demise. But there's a case to be made that Hagrid is expecting Tom Riddle to show up at his door, not necessarily being able to put together that Tom Riddle is Voldemort. But then that then raises the question because he grew up in that generation. Yes. No, I'm, I'm just trying to think through all of the potential options. I'm not yeah, saying I believe no. that. But... Because I, I don't think he's branching a crossbow with the ministry. That makes zero sense to me.
1: It makes no sense with the crossbow. But logically, it's the only thing I could think he's expecting is the ministry to show up and he doesn't want to go back to Azkaban. But then he gives up too easily to going back to Azkaban.
0: It, yeah, it just it, it doesn't make any sense to me why he's branching a crossbow is the point of the story. Uh, The fact of the matter. Um, I will say... um, Our boy Corn Fudge. Robert Hardy. That's his name, I believe, right? Robert Hardy. May he rest in peace. Remarkable. Obviously, they change the look in future movies. But his performance, both the couple lines he delivers, as well as all the facial reactions he gives in Hagrid's hut, top-notch. When Hagrid's like... If anybody were listening, all you have to do is follow the spiders, and that's all I'm saying. If you if you watch after he gets done saying that, Cornelius fudges face as Hagrid's kind of shuffling out of the hut. He kind of like does that like kind of look down to the side and like pauses and like what the hell did I just hear? And it kind of like very subtly shakes his head and kind of like
1: like this man's crazy. It was it was
0: brilliant, like absolutely brilliant. Um, I thought that was really good. I don't have any notes for the next like 15 minutes because it's the spider stuff. Uh, so if you want to talk about that you can, but I'm gonna go quiet here.
1: Um, Aragog is just well done. That's really the most I have to say about that is bringing that creature to life with when you look at all the creatures of the series. Very well done. Do I like spiders? No. Do we need to discuss all the creepy little spiders crawling across the screens? Please no. If you guys want to discuss that, go do that on your own page, please. Um, Don't send us spider pictures. But I really, my notes jump to the entrance to the chamber. Yeah,
0: that's where I go to. Thank God. Um, Again, the actual opening of the chamber, the way that the bathroom tap, not what I envisioned...
1: But overall, not bad. Yeah, I also didn't like expect it to turn into a slide. <laughs> yeah, I didn't.
0: Agreed. Agreed. Um, I did really love the door, the actual door to the chamber, the the snake mechanism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That was really well done. Just
1: how like everything opened.
0: Yeah, that was that was supremely like that was how I envisioned it. Like I, I liked that. Um, then we get to some of my least favorite parts of this movie. Um, it just the line reading... The, both the dialogue itself and the line readings that we get from young Tom Riddle are just not good. Um, it's the timing. It's the delivery. It's the actual dialogue, which is not the actor's fault. Um, and he's like, the basilisk may be blinded, but it can still hear
1: you. I was like... Harry doesn't know he's blinded. It's, so I, it's like when the evil guy gives away the whole plot. Yeah,
0: it's like, or very much a lie. It, there's a lot of questionable choices in terms of the delivery of the lines there. I didn't love.
1: Um, I didn't love the look of the basilisk.
0: I don't know if I had any thoughts on it. I don't really... It was a big scary snake. I don't... Yeah, you know, fair enough. I mean, if, if, if you have a quibble with it, fair enough, but... Big scary snake. Um, I don't understand how it popped up in that little pond all of a sudden towards the end. After it slithers away when Harry distracts it with the rock, which makes no sense because as you pointed out, they could smell.
1: Um, Also like stabbing through its mouth is not going to kill it.
0: Right, but all of a sudden it just pops up out of the bottom of this pond. I have questions about how the integrity of the pipes at Hogwarts and how that would work just from a logistic standpoint, but that's neither here nor there. Um, anything about while they're in the chamber, coming out of the chamber, or can we go to Dumbledore's office?
1: We can go to Dumbledore's, door, Dumbledore's office.
0: <laughs> the only thing I have from here, the Sword of Gryffindor, which is supposed to be a full-grown man's sword. So, theoretically, it's large and heavy. Uh,
1: Especially because it wasn't a, like, decorated piece when it was created. Well, that's where I'm, I'm getting there.
0: It, besides the fact that it's large and heavy... To your point, it was a functional sword, so therefore it's, theoretically, very sharp. It just stabbed a basilisk. Um, Dumbledore has the sword just on his desk, like, straight up on his papers and on his stuff.
1: covered in blood. It's
0: still caked in blood and guts and God knows what else. And when Dumbledore tells Harry to inspect it further to see whose name's on the sword, and this is one of those, like, just continuity things that, like, one of the assistant producers, or ads, or someone on set has to pick up. Is young Dan Radcliffe just picks up the sword of Gryffindor by the blade, like straight up by the bl- like, not by the hilts. No, he's just like by the blade. He'd be dead. He'd be dead because he would have bled out while Dumbledore could have saved him. But He'd he be, he would have lost his hand. Well, I don't Loss know. His lo- fingers would have been. It would have been. Ba- it would have been bad. Yes. It would and. And there's just no way that an 11... It didn't make sense. Um, And, you know, everybody talks about... Like, anyone who reviews Chamber of Secrets talks about Lucius Malfoy straight-up attempting murder in the halls of Hogwarts. What I want to talk about is the fact that Lucius Malfoy was, like, a foot away from Harry when he cast the spell. Typically, when we see spells cast... People are just like a normal, like, think of almost like COVID. They're kind of like socially distanced from each other. Like, they're not just like on top of each other. If you look at that scene, if you kind of just like very intently watch that scene, Lucius Malfoy is like no more than like a foot, a foot and a half away from Harry when he's about to cast the Killing Curse. And it's like one of those things where like, where this movie kind of gives you the impression that there's like a physical like kind of reverberation to a lot of spells if you cast the spell from a foot away from someone, you're probably going to get kind of the the, the the reverberation aftershock of it. It was very bizarre that he was super close. That's something I just kind of caught. was like, huh.
1: One of the things, and I think this every time I watch this movie, is when he is delivering like his final line before he mo- leaves, I always think of him as the bad guy in Scooby-Doo getting ready to be like, would have gotten away of it too if it wasn't for you rotten kids like just the way the line is worded and i can't recall how it is that's what i always think about i'm like it's just it just flows weirdly at that point yeah
0: yeah fair anything else from the movie before we get to our uh our wrap-up thoughts here
1: um no the rest of mine fill into our wrap-up thoughts
0: all right so in your mind who won the movie
1: we really don't see a lot of interactions outside the trio. like even little side scenes, they're not very existent within the movie versus some of the some of the other films. Okay. Like so it's very focused on them.
0: So who won um, the movie?
1: I mean there's people I always enjoy, but I don't know if there's one person that I went would go Well
0: oh, who'd you there's, supremely enjoy? It was like who'd you most enjoy?
1: I, I really enjoyed McGonagall in this one. You kinda start seeing her sass a little bit in the few scenes she's in. Yeah. I think Lucius's delivery is great, but I think you're now like start like the actors are now starting to really connect with their characters more and you're starting to see that meld and create an actual character rather than coming into a script. Who do you think won the movie?
0: My clear cut winner is Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs absolutely nailed it. When you when you hear critics, like professional critics, not whatever the hell Danny and I are, talk about actors chewing up the scene, you know, mm-hmm. chewing up, you know, kind of their time on screen. Jason Isaacs chewed up every bit of dialogue he had. He he luxuriated in every, you know, hard syllable and and nasty sneering adjective. He was just on his A-game. And if I had to give out kind of a runner's-up medal, it would have to go to Robert Hardy for his just 30-second brilliance of Cornelius Fudge. Um absolutely... like Y'all have to go back to that scene in Hagrid's hut and just ignore Dumbledore, ignore Jason Isaacs, although he does a remarkable job in Hagrid's hut. I do think that's actually one of his better scenes in the movie. But just focus on Robert Hardy as Cornelius Fudge. Um, and just the way that he says the couple lines he says at the beginning, bad business, you know, the whole thing, but watch his reactions to the stuff that Dumbledore says and to the stuff that Hagrid says. Um... My favorite scene was Quidditch, what was yours?
1: I really love the interaction when Arthur Weasley first enters the Mm. picture. That little kitchen scene, um, the function of the rubber duck, the looking at Harry and be like, who are you, like sitting at my table? Um, I do find it weird that Harry responds like, Harry, Harry Potter, like, dude, your kid Ron's been talking about this kid all summer. Like, don't need to say your last name. You're okay.
0: Well, that's part of it, though, is, you know... No, I know. Harry is fish out of water still. Um, You know, I'm fine with that. Um, Most surprising thing for you from this movie?
1: How much I actually enjoyed it. I don't remember, like... I'm not saying it was like, oh, that was amazing to watch again. I don't recall, like... I feel like the previous times I've watched it, it felt like it dragged on, and it didn't feel that like it. The flow was very good. Like I was when it's once it started, like I was thrown off a little by the beginning of how abruptly it started, but overall, it flows very well, timing wise. And I know that's nothing specific to the actual content of the movie.
0: Yeah, I ironically enough, same thing. I found. I found this movie to be just fine. Which to me is fascinating because a lot of people, including myself in past podcasts, have not been high on this movie, and I think it's because at least for me, I tend to give Sorcerer Stone a lot of a bit of a mulligan, because I always say, and I said on this podcast multiple times, I can't judge it based on its technology because it couldn't do any better at the time. At least, as far as I know, maybe, you know, I'm not a tech wizard. I wasn't, you know, whatever. As far as I'm concerned, you can't compare the first movie technologically to a lot of the later movies because it's different technology. So I kind of always left my critiques of the first movie at that. But taking away the technology component, I had a lot of negative feelings about the first movie when we watched it. There were large portions of this movie of Chamber of Secrets where I just kind of just, as I was saying earlier, just watched the movie. And I didn't really take a lot of notes. I was kind of like, okay, yeah, it's a fine scene. It's not great. It's not awful. It's a fine scene. That makes sense.
1: And moving the story along. Like, nothing felt, like, weirdly placed.
0: You know, I thought there was some really strong character acting again. I thought, you know, be it Richard Harris, uh, who, of course, this is his concluding movie as Dumbledore. Um... Oh boy, we're not gonna enjoy the future the Prisoner of Ask <laughs> Man and beyond. Um, you know, Maggie Smith, Alan Rickman, Jason Isaacs, uh, Robert Hardy, I thought Tom Felton did really well. I thought, I thought the trio did fine. I thought, you know, Emma Watson again, stellar performance, Daniel Radcliffe again I had moments of dialogue that were clunky, but really showed up and and Showed he was able to hit the big scenes. And I think a lot of Rupert Grant, especially early on here, is just doing the least amount of damage. right? Because in the first movie, there's a lot of Ron's stupid face. Um, But this movie, he kind of just did some good stuff. He wasn't, again, kind of like the movie. Not a lot of great, not a lot of awful. Just was kind of there and did his job. Um, So yeah, I was surprised by how fine this movie was for me. So I'll take that. You know what? Um, it's it's definitely ahead of Sorcerer Stone in my book. That's something we should do when we get to the end of this run is re-rank the movies. Um, see if we feel, I mean, I already feel differently, but see to what extent we feel yes. differently about the rest of the run.
1: Okay, I do have a question specifically for you. Oh, God. This one I didn't notice the music as much as we did.
0: I was thinking Worcester's about Stone. that.
1: So I was wondering, does your theory still hold up with the music, or did you not... know? I, like, I really didn't notice the music as much. The one scene that I like remember specifically the music is when Fox flies in. Yeah, I was
0: paying attention to it, but I didn't feel it as strongly. It was something I, I very consciously was thinking about throughout the movie. Uh, for the listeners who hopefully recall from our Sorcerer's Stone movie, is one of the things I really felt passionately about was that the music... That John Williams scored for *Sorcerer's Stone* very much was a reflection of Harry's point of view throughout the movie. Uh, this movie, I did not feel that nearly as much. There were a couple moments where I was like, "Huh, okay," but trying to do like a broad brush kind of theory, I didn't. It didn't hold up for me. This movie, um, I still thought the music was good, but it was a lot less present.
1: Definitely, like it wasn't as noticeable. Um... I do have one additional question. If, if, it's we
0: about, were, if it's about the spiders, I'm not talking about If it's not
1: about, about it. the spiders. So i got to go to bed after this. Okay. Is there anything else you have in regards to this before I ask my question?
0: That's all i got.
1: So, the next movie will be Prisoner of Azkaban. What are your thoughts right now on that movie? Oh,
0: well... <laughs> I mean... Like,
1: just to down <sighs> to, like, Michael, how you feel about that movie.
0: Michael Gambon. Oh, God. Um... I'm not excited to see Michael Gambon on my screen in any way, shape, or form. Not even in the slightest. I would rather have Fox gouge my eyes out with its talons. Um, You know, I'm a big fan of talking about the movies through things like the music, through things like the... The color palettes and the tones, and you know, 3 is famous for redefining the visual palette of the series, and and Alfonso Coron and his team giving us the darker blue palette, and and a lot of that. Um, And so, I'm excited to lean into that, I suppose, would be a way of putting that. Um, I guess the only other thing that comes to mind for me would be. I like laughing through the night bus stuff. I love doing my bad... Take her away, and it's about to be a bumpy ride! Like, I love doing that really bad uh, Jamaican impression. Um, Yeah, you know, so that's the big things. is I am not... Oh, God, Michael Gam, I'm going to have such a problem getting (laughs) through that episode. My notes are just going to be kind of like a bunch of just rage writing. Um, That's what I've got. What about you?
1: So... And I'm, I'm curious to see if this changes because I am in the middle of a reread of the book series. I, prior to rereading, I'm going to forefront with that, is that the Azkaban was always one of my favorite books, which made the movie one of my least favorite movies because I critique it harder because it is my favorite book. So that movie has not ranked very high for me, Since it came out. So I'm curious to see if that changes. I can't tell you the last time I've watched Azkaban. It's not necessarily one that I'll throw in randomly. So I'm curious to see if that changes now that I am rereading and rewatching things.
0: Yeah, I mean, Azkaban isn't... Like, Azkaban's not, at least from my recollection, like a fun movie. No, it's... Like, it's not what I'm gonna turn on to enjoy on a casual... No, way. it's
1: darker. It's it's like for a moody thunderstorm evening and you just want to put something on and curl up in a blanket.
0: Right. Um, I still th- It's funny because I think it ranks up there, at least by, my preconceived... what I recall as one of the better movies in the series. Who... At the time of recording here, who was our most recent guest we had on? We just had on in terms of recording kind of behind the scenes here we just had on Jennifer from the Soapy Cauldron Shop and I think she said that Ask a Man is her least favorite movie if I'm remembering correctly.
1: I think so. One of our
0: most recent guests did and I believe it was her. Um, and I thought that was interesting um, because I had always thought it was towards the top. I'm interested to see how I feel about it just watching it now kind of going through this intentional exercise of I mean look I have three pages of notes here. I don't Over the course of two movies, I now have about five and a half pages of notes. I don't think I took more than like one or two pages of notes in over the course of like an entire semester's (laughs) worth of classes. So this is new for me. I'm I'm excited to see how I where I come out on it. But I gotta go to bed. So let's wrap this thing.
1: All right, and that is our episode. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Belled.